Welcome to Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org. In this special episode, we hear a keynote address by Father Thomas Joseph White given at our 2022 Sacra Doctrina Project conference on the topic of grace and sanctification. This address is entitled Chalcedonian Christology and the Concept of Pure Nature. So my topic is more on nature and grace than on grace and sanctification, but there are some inevitable overlaps, not least because this is a topic about that pertains to Christology. Uh, really, it's about the grace, nature, and sanctification of the man, Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and, uh, and man. And so the title is Chalcedonian Christology and the Concept of Pure Nature. In this lecture, I'd like to think about both the ontological dimensions of the mystery of the Incarnation and the philosophical implications of classical Christology. Can we speak truly of Christ, the person of the Son, as both true God and true man, if we are incapable of positive philosophical and natural discourse concerning both the divine nature and, the, and human nature? By human nature, I mean that essence in virtue of which we are each human, and in virtue of which God who became human is one in nature with us as a rational animal. In what follows, I will present a brief account of the inward form of the classical use of the communication of idioms in Neo-Chalcedonian Christology. After this, I will argue that the assignments we make of nature terms to Christ in virtue of his divinity and humanity, respectively, though based in divine revelation specifically, and associated with the central mystery of the faith, namely the Incarnation, also require implicitly that we are naturally capable of thinking out philosophically what it means coherently to speak of the divine and human natures metaphysically. In addition, if we can conceive of a notion of human nature in Christ, we must also be able to distinguish nature in a state of grace, or nature as sanctified, nature in a state of sin, and nature in a state of pure nature. Were we unable to make this threefold distinction, we would in turn be unable to think about the hypostatic union and the sanctity of the humanity of Christ, and thus a central mystery of Christianity in a constructive fashion. So let me begin with the first part of the argument, Chalcedonian Christology and the ontology of the communication of idioms. Single-subject Christology is derived from and enshrined in the basic givens of the New Testament as apostolic teaching. Christ is one person, subsisting in two natural modes of being. A case in point is to be found in Philippians 2, 6-11, where the pre-existence of Christ is affirmed in a hymn form pertaining to the Son who, though he was in the form of God, took the form of a servant, and as man became obedient unto death, even so as to be exalted in the resurrection. The mystery of descent of the pre-existent Son into humanity, and the subsequent exaltation in resurrection, culminates in the acknowledgement by the nations of his divine identity. He is given the name above, above every other name by the nations, the name Lord, or Yahweh, who recognize in him the God of Israel, denoted by the Tetragrammaton of Exodus 3, 14, 15. 
I'll read the sequence through to you, although I'm sure many of you have uh, many times heard it and meditated upon it. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the fact that every knee will bend in adoration of him suggests that the prophecies of Isaiah 45, 5-23, which refer to the knee of every person in the world bowing before the Lord God of Israel, this, name, this revelation of Isaiah concerning the universal recognition of Israel's God by all Gentile nations is now coming to pass in the recognition of Jesus of Nazareth as Lord, that is to say as one who is both God and man, a man who was crucified and resurrected so as to reconcile the human race to the Father. Evidently, already in this primal confession of Christological faith, we perceive the nucleus of the classical use of the communication of idioms as expressive in turn of the ontology of what would eventually be confessed in dogmatic conceptual form 400 years later at the Council of Chalcedon. Christ is a singular subject of Pauline ascription to whom are attributed characteristics associated both with God, signified here by the form of God, the name of Yahweh, and he being a subject of worship, and those of a human being, signified here by his being the suffering servant, thus man, practicing intentional obedience, subjected to death as separation of body and soul, subjected also to physical resurrection and glorification. There is, of course, a correspondence between this linguistic pattern of ascription and the ontology it implies. Only if Christ is a single person who is both God and man, can formulations such as this one make sense? The person in question is pre-existent and divine since he exists in union with the Father prior to his historical experience of becoming human. But the person in question is also the singular bearer of traits derived from each na nature or form of being as Lord and as man. It's significant to note that the authors of the Council of Chalcedon chose to denote these two forms of Paul's Philippians 2, 6 through 11 in overtly ontological terms by using semantic phrases from Greek uh, uh, technical terminology, namely uh, calling, speaking of the two natures as phusis, in terms of phusis, a term having echoes from Hellenistic metaphysics. The proximate inspiration for the pronounced emergence of this pattern of interpretation from Chalcedon onward was the famous tome of Leo, in his letter 28 to Flavian, which entered into the council's decrees. In this text, Leo does two things theologically that are of capital importance for the subsequent history of Christology. First, he interprets the form of God in the form of a servant from Paul by making use of the Latin notion of natura, and in so doing also notes that the two natures are famously united but distinct and neither separated nor confused. The language is clearly ontological in implication, and it came to enter into the Council's formulations themselves. It suggests that God became human without ceasing to be God, and without abolishing, altering, or in any way doing violence to what it is to be human. 
On the contrary, God is the most human of us all, as Leo is prone to say in other letters. This idea suggests that there is not only no concurrence or rivalry of divine and human natures in Christ, but also, in fact, a kind of simultaneous plenitude of complementarity, of eminence and transcendence simultaneously. The more God is present in our human nature, even by way of personal union with our nature, the more naturally human we are, as we are more intensively sanctified by grace, and all of this is maximally perceptible in Christ, in whom God is present personally, and in whom our nature is sanctified most intensively, and thus, who is most human. The perspective of Chalcedon was in turn self-consciously adopted and re-articulated by Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae. Aquinas effectively notes in, um, I think, question 16 of the Third CFRs, three rules that govern the right application of the communion of idioms, basically the naming of Christ in his person and natures. Each of these rules has an ontological correspondent with significance for our consideration, eventually, of philosophical metaphysics. First, Aquinas notes that all attributes of divine nature and of the human nature of Christ pertain to the single personal subject of the incarnate word. That is to say, whether we speak of the eternal generation of the Son or his human birth in time as man, we attribute such characteristics only to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father. He was born before all ages of the Father, and he was born in time of the Virgin Mary. He is the author of creation as God and Lord and the giver of eternal life. But he is also subject to human torture, suffering, and death in virtue of his human nature. Second, the attributes of the two natures are not rightly predicated of each other and thus should not be confused. They remain ontologically distinct and distinguishable. The divine nature of Christ as Lord is eternal, not temporal, immutable, not subject to alteration, impassable, not subject to suffering, all-knowing, not subject to nescience. The human nature of Christ is present in time and place, not subject to omnipresence, finite, not subject to infinity, temporal, not subject to conditions of eternal pre-existence. The human nature of Jesus, then, is not omnipresent or pre-existent or eternal, while the divine nature of Jesus is not a historical process subject to time or subjection to created realities. Third, all nature terms, divine or human, can be employed, Aquinas tells us, grammatically as subject terms if and only if they denote the personal subject considered under the aspect of a nature. For example, we can rightly say that God gestated in the womb of the virgin. God gestated in the womb of the virgin. Or God was born in poverty. Or God suffered personally on the cross. Or God truly died on the cross. These are all necessary statements and are indeed orthodox because the term God is a nature term denoted in these cases of a specific person, the second person of the Son. This means it is not true to say the divine nature was born in time, the divine nature suffered, the divine nature died, or the Father or the Holy Spirit suffered and died. 
but only the Son who is God and man was born, suffered and died as a divine person who is truly human as are we. And in this case, then, we can and must say God truly was born, suffered and died. Likewise, we may say, pointing, Aquinas says, at Jesus, this man created the world, indicating Jesus Christ without implying that his human nature was the instrument of the creation. Or we may say, this man who obeyed has saved us by communicating grace to the world, without implying that his human obedience is constitutive of his eternal generation from the Father and thus his eternal identity as Son. It should be noted that these three principles help us delineate the shape of a mystery in human language. They're not meant to render the mystery of the incarnation, life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ fully transparent to human reason, nor do they simply leave these features of his existence unintelligible and opaque. They serve rather to help us identify an inward territory, the boundaries of the mystery of the faith, and they help us to exclude erroneous or counterfeit formulations. It seems to me in turn that one can identify rightly then three important ontological features that emerge from this inscape of mystery, rightly, rightly to be thought of as Christological truths that in turn have implications for philosophical metaphysics without being reducible to the latter. The first ontological feature of the mystery pertains to the person of the Son. The Son can begin to subsist as man personally by hominization in the womb of Mary without ceasing to be truly God. Consequently, precisely as one who is God personally, he can also become subject to all that is human, including birth, suffering, and death, which he truly experiences personally as the Son without ceasing to be unchangingly divine and one of the Holy Trinity. There are various soteriological aspects to this mysterious truth. For example, God truly shows his divine solidarity with us by freely identifying with our human limitations, and he can unite his ineffable perfect divinity and saving power to us even in the ontologically worst circumstances of our human suffering and mortality. Everything we have as human, including our acute suffering, becomes his so that everything he has as God can become ours. Behind this soteriological claim of the divine solidarity, we confront the mystery of God's gratuitous freedom to identify with us. Identify with us. It is grounded in his eternal identity, unchanging bliss, and perfect activity. The mystery from before the foundations of the world is personal, good, wise, and loving. Second, the two natures of Christ are not confused or mixed but they are also not competitive rivals or mutually exclusive to one another. Christ does not have to cease being God or freely practice some form of canonic self-limitation, qua God, in order to become human, nor does he need to take on a truncated or artificial human nature in order to remain God. There are profound metaphysical implications to this claim. God is not a rival to his creation seemingly because God is in no way exterior to his creation, 
as creator, but is in fact more intimate to created being than it is to itself, or most interior to the effect of the creation, what Aquinas calls the esse commune of created being, without being identical with that creation as such. This means that God can step out onto the stage of creation and enter the drama of created history as one of us, as human, without either ceasing to be God or doing violence to human nature. And as we've noted above, no one is more human than Christ, who is also truly God and truly filled with grace in his human nature. Furthermore, the human nature of, Christ, of Jesus, precisely as inundated with created grace, can be subordinate to and the instrument of his divine person. We are speaking now of the humanity of the word, without this in any way diminishing what Jesus is as human. Indeed, the human nature of Jesus is human actions of knowledge and love as man in grace, in a plenitude of grace, are now expressive of his personal identity as God the Son, who manifests his eternal life and presence his personal, you might say, lordship in and through his most human actions, words, gestures, teachings, sufferings, and miracles. It is the person of God the Son who shines forth radiantly in the most human life of Jesus as the child in the crib and the crucified of Golgotha. Consequently, God truly expresses who God is that is to say, in his very deity and eternal sonship, particularly in and through his human life and death, the sanctified human suffering and resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, we can infer from the third of our rules of predication noted above, an ontological mystery first identified by the Cappadocian Fathers and reiterated by Thomas Aquinas. All works of the divine persons are conducted through the medium of a nature. All works of a nature are works conducted by a personal subject. No persons without natures, no natures that are impersonal, at least when we're speaking of rational nature. The one is a principle from which, while the other is a principle through which. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit operate by virtue of, or in and through, the medium of their shared divine nature and life as God, while the Son alone operates also in virtue of, or in and through, the medium of his human life as man, meaning, you know, um, the person is the principle from which uh, of the operation, and the nature is the principle through which the person operates. There are two significant features to this third idea. First, evidently, from a Christian and therefore Trinitarian point of view, all things are ultimately personal in origin. The divine nature that has given rise to all things and that providently governs human history in view of salvation is a reality that is personal in nature. And in some sense, we can even and must say, we can even say and must say intrapersonal. The universe exists from uh, mutually coherent personal communion and in view of personal existence of creatures in grace and in the communion of grace with God and one another as the summit of created being, such that our personal life together and our life with the angels, our ecclesia Dei, in communion with God in Christ, is the summation of the creation. Second, in personal realities, all nature terms 
must be interpreted in a way that is in conformity with, but also not in opposition to, personal identity and vice versa. Personal identity passes through and is expressed in nature. Negatively speaking, then, it's a great mistake to oppose natural identity, being human or being a biological animal, for example, with personal identity, as if one must either advocate for an ontology of persons or an ontology of natures. One way to make this error is to claim that a serious study of human nature does away with personhood and personal dignity as mere folklore concepts from pre-modern cultures. The other way to do so is to claim that the another way to do so is to claim that the acknowledgement of human personhood and of personal freedom requires that we delimit or deny the reality of nature as a normative concept for free human action or thought, as if the personal agent could, or even must, determine, self-determine, and mute, to mutate his nature in a plastic fashion in the service of personal freedom, the will to power, self-exploration, the, uh, the setting of one's own determinations of the characteristics of personal identity through the plastic uh, realizations of human nature. In reality, all personal acts of knowledge and love, personal acts of knowledge and love, are also always intrinsically natural acts of knowledge and love, stemming from the principles of human knowledge and free will that characterize our rational nature. This is true in Christ's own human knowledge and freedom, which are reflective in turn of his uncreated divine life his eternal natural wisdom and love of, as God. So I turn now to the second part of this presentation, natural grounds, the natural grounds of mystery, the Christological presupposition of a philosophical metaphysics. In the second half of this essay, I'd like to argue for the following thesis. In light of the ontology implied by the classical use of the communication of idioms, we can affirm that Chalcedonian Christology presupposes and inevitably makes use of various principles of classical metaphysics. In particular, the notions of human nature and of pure nature are necessary for a coherent Christology. Why is this the case and in what sense? The first principle to observe is that when we speak of the divine nature or the human nature of Christ, we must qualify that we are speaking of a theological mystery, not ever of a mere truth of philosophical reasoning. Even if we know something of what human nature is and something of how to speak rightly of the divine nature philosophically in distinction from or prescinding from divine revelation as such, nevertheless, the divine and human natures of Christ are formally mysterious in themselves and approached primarily with the help of divine revelation. In the technical lingo, the formal object that specifies the act of faith in which we know the divine and human natures of Christ is supernatural in specification, even if it assimilates and makes use of the formal specifications of, of knowledge of divine and human nature we may, make, we may rightly make use of in thinking of Christ. The nature in virtue of which Christ is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit pertains to the essence of the Trinity. The nature in virtue of which he is one with us designates our human nature as redeemed and sanctified in the new Adam, subject to atoning death and eschatological exaltation. 
This is why Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 22, rightly notes that the mystery of what it means to be human is only ultimately resolvable by reference to Christ, in whom are present the plenitude of grace and the perfection of human nature by and within the life of that grace. Gaudium et Spes 22 talks about the mystery of human existence, not the philosophically knowable nature of human existence. And mystery is a technical term in Catholic theology, and it implies the formal object specified by divine revelation. Having provided this warning against a naive form of theological rationalism, we can now proceed to a second and more essential point. The mysteries of Christ's divine nature and human nature are literally inconceivable or intellectually inaccessible for us unless we are also capable of some form of natural reflection regarding the nature of God the Creator, conceived by way of analogy, if you're a Thomist, as well as regarding the structure of human nature, univocally denoted in universal fashion, I think, for a Thomist. The reasons for this can be stated clearly. Let us consider the divine and human natures in turn. If the human being cannot think naturally about the existence of God and the nature of God as creator, however indirectly, apophatically, or analogically in qualified fashion, then the very idea of the incarnation conceived in, Chalcedon in Chalcedonian terms is literally unthinkable. This argu the argument stated succinctly for this strong claim runs thus. Every human being is naturally intellectually active by means of conceptual reflection and can only consider very re various realities as objects of knowledge in an active way if he or she has some conceptual purchase on the reality in question. The objective conceptual knowledge in question is derived from reflection on the realities human beings experience and not from infused a priori concepts, though such knowledge can eventually reach knowledge attained of things that are causes of the things we experience more directly, such as in the arguments for the existence of God as Aquinas conceives them. This natural process being alluded to is not destroyed by divine revelation or the operative activity of grace in the human person. Consequently, if a person is to turn toward God intellectually and freely under the prior instigation of grace and in relation to specifically revealed objects of faith, then the person must also do this actively by natural means of reflection subject to and subordinate to the truths of revelation and the movements of grace. If there is no manner in which human beings can naturally actualize their capacity to know objects of revelation in any respect as objects of natural knowledge, such that there is no natural point of contact in which grace and revelation may address human beings, you might say, under the auspices of their natural understanding, then either the divine revelation is so alien to human knowledge that the human being simply cannot actively consider it and so grace is intrinsically violent to human nature, or the knowledge communicated by grace provides in effect not only the supernatural object and inward inclination of faith for the intellect, but also the full natural capacities, objects, and inclinations of knowledge that pertain to God. And in this case, the real distinction of grace and nature must be collapsed for the human being to move itself naturally is in fact only able to do so insofar as the action is itself an action of grace. Divine revelation in this case is no longer a grace then, 
but a form of infused knowledge innate to the human person, replacing its nature or in some way collapsing the distinction of natural and supernatural inclinations. And in that case, it's hard to say that grace is a gift. This argument applies more generally to the human being's capacity to arrive by its active powers at a natural notion of God, but it applies in a specific way to the case of our consideration of Jesus Christ as a personal subject possessing divine nature and having its attributes, the attributes of divine nature, predicated to him uh, because this would become thoroughly unintelligible if we were incapable of any concept of the divine nature. Even if the divine nature of the Son is a mystery of faith, one possessed in common with the Father and the Spirit, a nature possessed in common with the Father and the Spirit, and a mystery of that nature made known to us uniquely by way of divine revelation, its reception as mystery in human thought requires an analog concept drawn from natural philosophical understanding that allows the human intellect to orient itself towards God present in Jesus Christ. Were this not the case, the judgment of faith that, quote, Christ who is truly God possesses in, uh, in its fullness the divine nature, or simply Christ is God as a judgment, would stand completely outside the ambit of the natural capacities and range of human knowing. In this case, the gift of faith would become so extrinsic to the human intellect as to be inassimilable. Positive knowledge of the divine nature is thus a natural requirement if the human person is to be in obediential potency to the gift of grace that permits him to know and affirm that Christ is God. In employing, by the way, in employing the notion of obediential potency, I'm suggesting that we have no natural intellectual inclination to know of the Trinity as such in its essential unity, but that we do have a natural inclination to think about God analogically and about the divine nature in its essential unity, and that can be elevated by grace so as to be placed in the service of reflection on the mystery of Trinitarian unity as such. Now this argument, if it's got some semblance of the truth to it, means that only if there is a metaphysical range of knowledge by which we can affirm the existence of God coherently and demonstrably as a truth of reason, is it then possible to develop the reasoned account of the intellectual possibility of faith and in turn also an intellectually self-conscious dogmatic theology. Dogmatic reflection on Christ without metaphysics would be in this respect an insincere act of the mind by which the activity of faith would orient the mind towards an end extrinsic to the ordinary conditions of human thought and leave human reason imminent to itself without intrinsic reference to divine truth even despite the presence of, the, of great, the grace of faith. The culture of immanentism would advance despite the best efforts of the gift of God. The, mind of the, life, the natural life of the mind would not be in, subject to potential sanctification. To give a precision to this notion, we can clarify what must be the case for there to be a natural capacity of the mind for faith without there being a purely rational derivation of the object or act of supernatural faith, which we could term epistemological Pelagianism. On the one hand, there must be a specification of human thinking by conceptual reason and contemplative judgment that allows human beings to think about God the Creator in truth by means of natural or philosophical reflection. 
This specification is not identical with that of supernatural faith, which orients human intelligence towards the awareness and understanding of God as Holy Trinity, and eventually may terminate in the beatific vision of God, all of which is made possible only by grace. But the former natural specification is taken up into, preserved, and made use of within the sanctifying activity of faith as it elevates the life of the mind, even if it can in no way produce that natural inclination, can in no way produce or initiate the latter act of supernatural sanctifying faith. Under grace and within grace, the natural capacity to think about God is taken up into the act of faith and moved within this act toward God as known both supernaturally and naturally. The reason the natural predisposition is essential is not because it causes the faith, but because without it, faith would be violent to the human intellect and nature, and the nature would be unable to move itself in sanctifying life under grace and within grace towards God. The natural and supernatural specifications of the human intellect under grace in sanctifying life of faith remain distinguishable, but in no way extrinsic to one another. They function in harmony, hierarchical coordination, and instrumental subordination. And these are characteristics of the sanctification of the life of the mind. To find harmony between faith and reason, hierarchical co coordination between philosophy and theology, theology and philosophy, and instrumental subordination of the human life of culture to the deeper life of the ecclesial life of Christ in the world. The revelation of God addresses the human natural desire for perfect knowledge of God, the desire to see God, but elevates this inclination of nature to a higher plane and provides it with new life and dynamic specification. So now to turn to human nature. Likewise, the basic theological commitment to Chalcedonian Christology requires a metaphysics of human nature that permits us to identify a structure of human nature attributed univocally to all human beings. That is to say, there is an essence of human nature, one adopted by God in the Incarnation, that is present universally by way of identity of kind in all human beings. We all share a common nature, and Christ shares this nature as well with us. Note at least two reasons this must be the case for theological motives. First, if we cannot in any way identify the essential nature of man, in its universal specification, making use of the instruments of natural human reason, then we also cannot in any way understand what it means to say that God became a human being, having a human nature in solidarity and plenary identification with us. Became a what? Became a what? In this case, the universal soteriological significance of the incarnation is eclipsed. What does it even mean to say that God became truly human? and that this has a universal meaning for the whole human race, a group of entities that share a common nature and thus a common final end and destiny. A merely extrinsic Christological designation of human nature is not feasible, as if we could only know human nature because God took on a human nature, and this now illumines us as to what human nature is. Because we would not be able naturally to identify what a human being is as distinct from something having the mere accord of phenomenological appearances. And thus Christ's divine attempt to draw the so-called human race, which is, naturally speaking, um, an unresolvable question mark, to draw this so-called human race into unity 
would be necessarily ineffective if we cannot ourselves even recognize, even potentially under grace, what human nature is as that which is subject to redemption. Now it is true, and it is in fact important to note, that grace can and does heal and sharpen the natural capacities of the intellect to identify the essence of man. And the church's philosophical traditions and her natural law patrimony serve to educate us to do just this. And they need, we need that for reasons of you know, the effects of original sin, personal sin, structural sin. But these traditions can only do this because there already exists in each human being a natural predisposition or capacity to think realistically about human identity in its essential constituents. Second, on this front, we cannot understand the perfection of Christ's human nature, the sanctification of Christ in his human nature, in its modal realization under grace and internal to the hypostatic union, if we cannot understand the essence of man as such. For example, we cannot understand the mode of perfection present in Christ's obedience in charity, humility, and sinlessness if we cannot understand something more generally about human freedom, obedience, and the virtues. Likewise, we cannot appreciate the supernatural mystery of Christ's suffering out of charity for the Father and the human race in the intensive love of the crucifixion if we cannot understand something of the phil philosophical conundrum of human suffering and the distinctions of body and soul, as well as the enigma of death and the natural evil it represents. Now examples like this could be multiplied, but the principal claim is clear. Catholic theology must be committed to a metaphysical realism or essentialism concerning the nature of the human being as an epistemological presupposition of any rigorous intellectual commitment to Christological orthodoxy. Now this last point is important when considering the various controversies regarding pure nature. We should recall in this instance that pure nature is not the same thing as human nature essentially considered, although it seems to me that in at least 50% of the contemporary literature, this is precisely the confusion that is ever presently made. Indeed, Aquinas does not identify pure nature with the essence of human nature. Human nature, essentially considered, is that nature we share in all its states or modes, whether we are speaking of Adamic nature before the fall in a state of grace, or the fallen state of human nature subject to a state of sinfulness after the fall prior to redemption, or the state of Christian life under grace, or the state of human nature sanctified in Christ, or the state of human nature sanctified in the Virgin Mary. These are all logically distinguishable and ontologically distinguishable states of human nature. We could also refer to the eschatological state of human nature after beatification and in the sanctification of bodily resurrection. In any of these cases, the same essential human nature is spoken of as Christ has the same human nature as Adam before the fall or after his fall from grace. Adam's essential nature did not change due to the fall. Aquinas says it textually many times. The state of pure nature, however, pertains then not to the essence of nature, which always remains the same in all these states, but rather to our human nature in a particular hypothetical state that Thomas Aquinas thinks never existed in history, but importantly, he thinks could possibly have existed had God so willed 
in principle. And this is a state of human nature without original grace and righteousness, which he in fact thinks we were created in, but also without the effects of sin, which he certainly thinks are not inevitable, as if God had to create us sinful. In short, God could have in principle created us in a state of nature not marked by grace prior to the effects of sin. And this was a common opinion of people at the time of Aquinas who argued that God had first created humanity in a state of pure nature, as did Bonaventure and Innocent III and others. Why consider this hypothetical mode or state of nature that has not ever existed? Precisely to call to mind two key truths. First, that grace and sanctification are not integral to nature or due to nature, but are gifts given even from the beginning originally to elevate human nature into friendship with God by participation in the divine nature. And indeed, Aquinas affirms that both angels and human beings were created in a state of grace, not a state of pure nature. And this was truly by grace, not due to something integral to angelic nature or human nature. Second, this, this notion helps us recall that sin is not natural, but entails a disfigurement. Our fallen state now is not purely natural. The state we're in is not a state where everything we do, especially when it's sinful, is just that which pertains to us in our best realizations of human nature. These two truths are deeply interrelated to a true confession of Christ's identity, especially as human, as most human, and as sanctified in his humanity. Though he has a human nature essentially identical with that of all human beings in whatsoever historical state, including those of us who are sinners bound by death, his state of being human is one characterized by a plenitude of sanctifying grace and by sinlessness. In his mode of being essentially human, in his state or mode of being essentially human, he is not therefore inhuman, but is in fact most perfectly human. The very notion that he has restored something lost in Adam and indeed elevated us beyond that original state of righteousness in some respects so that he heals us and super elevates us, heals us in what is natural to us, uh, repairing the state of sin, elevates us into a state of sanctification, and that his sinlessness contrasts with our sinfulness. All this is key to understanding the history and meaning of redemption itself. To understand Christ as essentially one of us in human nature who is unlike us in mode or state, but who can transform our state effectively as the Redeemer, we must be able in principle to think of nature as distinct from grace and as nature as distinct from sin. But if we can do that, we must also by definition be able to think of a state of pure nature. So it turns out to think about Chalcedonian Christology coherently, we do need something like scholastic metaphysical notions uh, re relating to divine nature, human nature, and the state of pure nature. And indeed, I would go so far as to affirm that our Christological faith depends upon it. So now, just to conclude, let me say that reflection on Christology and philosophical reflection on metaphysics both take place within a singular concrete history of culture in which they are integrated in a singular multivalent Christian life of faith and reason. It's not as if you just have the philosophers sealed off hermetically in one room and the theologians in another. The philosopher and the theologian are the same person. 
living out different modes of reflection based on different formal objects, but thinking about harmony and subordination and clear unity of reasoning about the mystery of the world and the nature of the world. This life of reflection on Christological ontology occurs for the church, first and foremost, to clarify her confession of faith and in order to communicate it evangelically. That confession of faith is Christological, but by that very measure, it also takes place for the world at large, since it, ex it seeks to explain reality philosophically in light of Christ and in relation to God's existence among us as a human being. Yes, I said philosophically in light of Christ. If the incarnation has a universal horizon of meaning and intelligibility so that all things are explained theologically in light of Christ, then there must also be a way in which the church uh, um, and culture at large can and must think also philosophically about all things in light of God and think about the place of human nature within the larger framework of the existence of the world God has made. Where this is impossible on the natural level, we would be incapable of making every thought subject to Christ, as St. Paul enjoins us to do in 2 Corinthians 10.5, in subordination to the supernatural life of grace. And so, conversely, or positively speaking, the sanctification of the life of, mind in, of, the, life of the mind in faith is also uh, requires, you might say, a vocation to philosophical reasoning within and for the sake of theological thinking, but also by that very measure as an integral philosophical life that has its own contours, specifications, uh, internal commitments, norms. For these same reasons then, the universal proclamation of the mystery of Christ requires not only a theoretical Christology, but also a metaphysical apostolate as a dimension of Christology in the life of the church. In concrete history, the church confesses Christ as both true God and true man in every generation. In doing so, she also has learned down through the ages to speak of God and man naturally, that is to say philosophically, in every generation, in the service of the gospel and as a dimension of her own evangelical mandate. She must do so, so as to articulate the mystery of one person in two natures, Jesus Christ, true God and true man. For this is the only orthodox Christology that there is. Thank you very much.